Lynn Hiles Ministries presents Dr. Lynn Hiles That You Might Have Life. And here's your host, Dr. Lynn Hiles. Welcome back to the program again this week, and thank you for joining us on the program. You may be watching this for the first time because we have uh, opened our program into another time slot. So you may be seeing uh, our program for the first time, and we want to welcome you and thank you for taking time out of your schedule to join us. Uh, We have been doing a series on the Book of Romans. Of course, I'm Dr. Lynn Hiles, and you'll see on the screen how to contact us. But our thrust is primarily the gospel of grace, the new covenant, and we teach a lot concerning the present reality of the kingdom of God. And I think you'll be blessed if this is the first time you've uh, watched us to continue to tune in. We are at the end of the series, like I said, on the book of Romans. And if you've missed any of these and you like what you hear today, uh, you can go back to our YouTube channel and watch them on demand. Uh, because everything that we air, we archive it to our YouTube channel. There's also a uh, podcast that you can listen to the audio portions of this on iTunes and as well as uh, an RSS feed for your Android device. Uh, The best way to do that would be to go to my website, and in the upper right-hand corner there are icons that will take you directly to our YouTube channel, to our podcast, and to the RSS feed. And of course, the address uh, of our website is there on the screen. And we encourage you to do that. All of our books, CDs, our message of the Moth Club, our streaming service is all available through our website, our itinerary, all about us. I encourage you to go take a look at that. It is just a, a, a plethora of good things for you to be able to feed on spiritually. Uh, when I started this series, we started uh, in the book of Romans, and we are probably somewhere around 50 programs on this. So this has been quite a study. I've enjoyed it thoroughly. And as I started sharing with you early on, the book of Romans is a letter and therefore it is meant to be read in one sitting and not so much like a a chapter this week and a chapter next week because there's a flow and a theme that Paul has as he is uh, declaring and teaching in the book of Romans. And the first part of the book of Romans, if you you, uh, read that alone and then stop after about chapter 3, the uh, first part of uh, Romans is what I call the diagnosis. It is Paul diagnosing Uh, the condition of the human condition, and what he finds in Romans 1, 2, and 3 is that it indicts everything and everybody, uh, insiders, outsiders, Jew, Gentile, those who have the covenants of promise, and those who do not. He he includes all of them in his uh, diagnosis, and the end of the uh, diagnosis is somewhere around chapter 3 where he says, here's the end of the law, there's none righteous, no, not even one. And so what he begins to show is that there's no flesh that's justified on the basis of the works of the law. And then he goes into uh, the deliverance section, which begins in about chapter 4, where he talks about how Abraham simply believed God, and he entered into what God was doing for him instead of what he was doing for God. And that's a real switch in the gospel, because we've made an emphasis on what we're doing for God instead of entering in by faith to what God is doing for us. And he begins to talk about a faith righteousness. 
Because up until the gospel is preached by the apostles and by Jesus, there is no such thing as faith righteousness in the sense of those that were under the law. They were trying to establish their own righteousness, as Romans 10 said, and they did not submit themselves to the righteousness of Christ, which was given to us as a gift. Because of the gift of righteousness, we reign in life because of the abundance of grace. And the gift of righteousness, we reign in life. So uh, grace or righteousness, we give it to us as a free gift, and it's out of that that we live. And then he starts talking about, you know, one man did it wrong and got us in all this trouble in Romans 5, and another man did it right and got us out of it. But more than get us out of it, he got us into a life. And he starts talking about then the, the, the old man being crucified. We were crucified with Christ, and we've moved into a new life and a new land. And in chapter 7, he's talking about torn between two different ways of doing things, law and grace. And chapter 8, he talks about receiving the adoption and moving into an understanding of our sonship. And in chapter 10 of Romans, he starts dealing with, uh, uh, once again, if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth, the Lord Jesus, you will be saved. We've got a lot of hoops that we've made people jump through to be able to have a relationship with God. And then, uh, you know, from chapters 10, 11, and 12, it starts talking really, uh, especially 11, about how Jesus is the true vine. And whether you're Jew or Gentile, the issue is not the branches. The issue is, are you in Christ? Because He is not a Jew which is one outwardly, but He's a Jew which is one inwardly who's had a circumcision in the heart. And then in chapter 12, He starts talking about the outworking of this, in other words, the dispensing of it. That's where we're coming up now to the dispensing of it, because chapter 12, he talks about the difference between being conformed and being transformed. And we talked about in that segment how that when you are conformed, it's because you are under law, and law can change your behavior, but grace will change the heart. That's transformation. One conformity is to superimpose a set of rules on someone from an external uh, method to make them behave, while the other transform is that almost like a caterpillar uh, turning into a butterfly. Something is deposited within the DNA and the nature of the butterfly to be transformed into what he is. And then 13, we started talking about uh, the outworking of this on a practical level. Let every man be subject to the higher powers. And we talked about things that I think were vitally important, even in how we see the kingdom. And we talked about how that God gave to the governments uh, the ability to wield the sword, to enforce laws, and they are not a terror to them who do right, but to terror to them who are lawbreakers. But we also showed you that the church was not to use the sword. The church was to use the keys of the kingdom. And when we get those mixed up, we end up with a whole lot of tragic stuff that we can see down through history. So today, we're still going to talk about the dispensing or the dispersing. How does this lived out on a practical level? Because as Paul is preaching and including both Jew and Gentile, now there is this convergence and this merging of two totally different cultures. Even their dietary laws are shifting. It's a massive shift. I don't know if you ever sit and think about what a massive shift it must have been to live within this early church trying to figure out what we're not under law, but what goes, what stays, what is the way that we should conduct our lives. And that's the latter part 
of the book of Romans is how it interacts with the human experience as we blend together in the gospel as we are one in Christ and finding out there is one body. There's neither Jew nor Greek, bond nor free, but all, all are one in Christ for those who are in Christ. Now, let me uh, just take you to the 14th chapter, and Paul was beginning to deal with some things because, uh, you know, once again, there is a convergence and emerging between insiders and outsiders, or if you will, Jew and Gentile. So Paul begins to write this. This is the, this is the law of liberty. It says, receive one who is weak in the faith but not to dispute over doubtful things. For one believes he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats only vegetables. Let not him who eats despise him who does not eat, and let not him who does not eat judge him who eats. For God has received him. For who are you to judge another servant? To his own master he stands or falls. Indeed, he will be made to stand before God is able to make him, and uh, 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 he is he will be made to stand, for God is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day above another; another esteems every day alike. Let each be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day observes it to the Lord, and he who does not observe the day to the Lord he does not observe it. He who eats eats to the Lord, for he gives God thanks. And he who does not eat to the Lord, he does not eat and gives God thanks. For none of us lives to himself, and no one dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. To this end, for to this end Christ died and rose and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. But why do you judge your brother, or why do you show contempt for your brother, for we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each one of us shall give account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not judge one another any more, but rather resolve this to not to put a stumbling block or a cause to fall in our brother's way. I know and am convinced by the Lord Jesus that there is nothing unclean of itself. But to him who considers anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. Yet if your brother is grieved because of your food, you are no longer walking in love. Do not destroy uh, with your food the one for whom Christ died. Therefore do not let your good be spoken of as evil, for the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. For he who serves Christ and these things is acceptable to God and approved by men. Therefore, let us pursue the things which make for peace and the things by which one may edify another. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All things indeed are pure, but it is evil for the man who eats with offense. It is good neither to eat meat or, nor to drink wine nor to do anything by which your brother stumbles or is offended or is made weak. Do you have faith? Have it to yourself before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves. But he who doubts is condemned if he eats, because he does not eat from faith, for whatever is not of faith is sin. Now this is a powerful piece of Scripture, and I think it's incredible. There's a few things that I really want to uh, put an emphasis on uh, as we go down through this. But one of the things that even uh, you know you see in the book of Acts that was cause for, I believe it is the 15th chapter of the book of Acts, 
was cause for a Jerusalem council to be brought together, and Paul comes with some certain Gentiles, and they have what I call the big Jerusalem powwow. And they are trying to decide whether these Gentile Christians need to be brought back up under the law. And of course, they uh, finally concede that uh, circumcision is not necessarily, nor is it required of these Gentiles to follow Jewish customs and laws and some of these things. And so they, they told them that what the thing that they would do is to abstain from a meat offered to idols and from things that are strangled and uh, 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 and to remember the poor, he said, which we were willing to do. That was their final conclusion. It was not that they had to keep the laws of Moses, but see what was happening even in the early uh, uh, Acts 15 encounter was God was doing something among the Gentiles, what many translation calls the outsiders. They were strangers to the covenants of promise. Let me just say this to you. I am preparing in my next series to teach, I think I'm going to anyway, on the parables of the kingdom. And when you start to understand that the parables of the kingdom were written to a Jewish audience, and he's talking to them about being invited to a supper, and then all of them begin to make excuses. And so uh, he finally says that the uh, owner or the man who's making the great feast, the great marriage feast for his son, he said, then if they don't come and they begin to make excuses, go out then into the highways and the byways and the hedges and compel them to come in. So what was happening was he this great supper that's being invited to is this communion, if you will. It is the, uh, it is the new covenant uh, 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 covenant meal of communion. He's talking about inviting everyone to the table and the marriage of this son, and the ones that were invited weren't coming, so he invites, if you will, the Gentiles. That's the highways and byways, and those who were not included in the first invitation, because it was to the Jew first, and then to the Gentile, and Jesus was sent first of all to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, which is what the parable of the lost sheep is about as he leaves the 99 to go get the one. He's looking for the lost sheep from the house of Israel, and he's trying to give them every opportunity to come into the covenants of promise. Well, once the gospel begins to break throughout this whole ministry of Paul, and others that are now touching the Gentiles, because Paul was an apostle uh, to the Gentiles, while Peter was an apostle to the circumcision, and James also was an apostle to the circumcision. But now the community of faith has gotten much bigger. And so how is this thing lived out? You know, I think these things, although they are relevant to a first century audience, are also relevant to us, because how do we live out grace, and how do we live out our freedoms without being offensive? And you know, I, 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 I've been in ministry now 40, uh, I believe that this spring will be 44 years of full-time traveling ministry. And I can tell you, we've come a long way from the legalism of the days where everything you could think of was a sin. And so I'll talk about that maybe as we get on down here, talking about whatever's not of faith is sin. But uh, what, what, what Paul is beginning to deal with here is you re realize the context of this is these Gentiles who are coming in, they don't have all these dietary laws. They, they, they've never been taught not to, uh, you know, not to eat pork or to eat a bottom feeder fish or to eat shrimp or, uh, you know, uh, when they went to the marketplace where they buying meats. 
that had been sacrificed to some idol, and now uh, you know uh, they're they're uh, you know. Uh, now they're not allowed to eat. And even that first uh, uh, Jerusalem council at Acts 15, where they came back and said to abstain from things strangled and meats offered to idols, Paul comes back later, they actually revised that and said, listen, if it was offered to an idol, just don't ask any questions about it. And for conscience sake, you know, in other words, they're not gods at all anyway. So if you, but, but if you are weak in faith and that's something that becomes offensive to you, then the best thing you can do is not to eat it because the key to walking in the perfect law of liberty is the law of love. Now, see, I think if we could just get a hold of this, it makes the gospel very, very simple. Because even Jesus himself elevates worship even under the law not to just our vertical encounter with God as we stand and offer our offerings or our gifts, but that worship is not only vertical, but it's horizontal. It's how we treat each other. It's how we love our neighbor or how we treat humanity that's around. This is a lesson that I believe Christian people really need to learn as well. Because when Jesus said this to him, and he said, if you bring your gift to the altar... And there remember that your brother has aught against you. Leave your gift at the altar and then go first to be reconciled to your brother. Because what he's showing you is that God views how we treat each other on the same level playing field of worship as the gift we bring to the altar. In other words, it is easy to set within uh, you know, the sanitary, if you will, confines of our buildings inside of our stained glass churches and do our rituals and our services and our worship as it were to God. But if we do that and then we leave there and we don't treat other people as well, as we, in other words, what, what he's showing you is that it's not just love God. And even, even when the uh, uh, lawyer comes to Jesus, and he comes to Jesus, and it's, it's, it's right before the story of the Good Samaritan. And he says, Good Master, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, first of all, you don't do anything to inherit eternal life. Somebody dies and leaves you something. That's an inheritance. Jesus died and left you something. But secondly, when Jesus, when Jesus is asked the question, What must I do? He's saying, if you want to know what you have to do in order to, to inherit this eternal life or to enjoy the life, literally the Greek says there, the life of the coming age, because the word eternal there or everlasting is not a word that just simply denotes endlessness, but it was the life of the coming age. While that includes going to heaven when you die, eternal life doesn't begin when you die. It begins when you got born again. And so the life of the coming age was a life lived in the context of the new covenant age because the old covenant age was about to pass off the scene. But when asked several times, even by the rich young ruler, what must I do? And then Jesus said, well, you know the commandments, keep the commandments. And the, the, the ruler says to him, well, I've, I've done all this from my youth up. And Jesus tell him, sell, sell all that you have and, and give it to the poor. And the man went away sorrowful because he was very rich, because he couldn't give up. And I sometimes think it's not so much 
how much money this man had. He just had such confidence in his own ability to be a rule keeper that he thought he was rich and increased in goods and didn't need a Savior. And that's what the gospel really, the law is to reduce you to the point where you know you need a Savior. But when the, the, the man, the lawyer asked Jesus, I'm chasing too many rabbits here this morning, but when the rich, when, or when the lawyer asked Jesus, what must I do? Jesus says, there's two commandments. Or he asked Jesus, which is the greatest commandment and what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And then he doesn't leave it there. And love your neighbor like you love yourself. So what he's doing is showing you that worship is not just you loving the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. But it's also learning how to let that love that has flown vertically to those of us horizontally in our lives, because there's, that's the outworking or the dispensing of the gospel of grace and what Romans 14 calls the law of liberty. And I think that even when James is quoting, he said that he that looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in that, it becomes a doer of the word and not a hearer only, deceiving him own self. So the perfect law of liberty is not the law of Moses. The perfect law of liberty is learning how to walk in love. And if you see that personified in Jesus, time after time after time, even when He heals on the Sabbath day and seemingly seems to break their uh, ceremonial laws, or if you will, their Sabbath laws, and, and He's even going to deal with that in this Romans, uh, the 14th chapter, because He said, if one man keeps a holy day, uh, then let him keep it to the Lord. And if another man does not keep that day, and he doesn't esteem that day, then let him do that as under the Lord. In other words, he's showing you that we have moved beyond the legalism and the law of rules, and we're learning how to walk in love. And I think even the Sabbath rule, or as God gave it to the children of Israel in the commandments, was not because God was trying to set this stringent rule to, to make you follow what you see the scribes and Pharisees. I mean, they are just diligent about this, because he goes on to tell you that the Sabbath was made for the man and not the man for the Sabbath. In other words, God was even in the law trying to show the house of Israel, I'm not like the Egyptian taskmasters. I'm not going to make you work all the time. By the way, take a day off and rest. I think it would be good to rest. Now, I think that the law of Moses is good if a man uses it lawfully, but the problem is we've used the law to justify ourselves, and there's nobody justified by the works of the law. And uh, it doesn't mean that the law is bad. It means the law is good if a man uses it lawfully. In other words, it is good to take a day of rest. It is good to honor your father and your mother. It is good. In other words, all of these commandments and laws are the things that show us some form of a standard. Paul said without the law, uh, uh, moral morality would have been simply guesswork. But then he goes on to say, but what ha happened when he, in Romans the seventh chapter, is that when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. So in other words, it came, and when the uh, commandment came, it stirred up in me all manner of concupiscence. In other words, it became like a forbidden fruit because it was such a legalistic law that I was doing things out of rebellion. It became more enticing to me, and then when I kept it, 
Then he said, then I found myself thinking, well, I'm holier than you are. And it, and, it, and it became then this arrogance and pride and all the stuff that goes with that. And look how holy I am. And it made a Pharisee out of him. So the law uh, then became uh, something to him that that revived and and, and caused him to be uh, on this roller coaster ride of I want to do good, but evil is present with me. And then he did, gets to the final conclusion by saying, "Who shall deliver me from the body of this death?" Thank God he will. In other words. Paul was talking about being delivered from the law, but he's talking about there's another higher law that is set in motion, and that's called the law of love. And that's why Jesus would show up on a Sabbath day and heal the sick and do all kinds of signs, wonders, and miracles. And every time he did, the scribes and Pharisees would look at him and say, there are six days in which men ought to work. And so, you know, they're talking about this vertical thing with God. And bless God, if you break, break that Sabbath day, you are in trouble. This man is a sinner. He's black. Like, you know, they, they accuse Jesus of all kinds of stuff. But see, Jesus was invoking a higher law because he said, Ought not this woman, who is a daughter of Abraham, be loosed from this infirmity on the Sabbath? And he talks about if you, uh, you know, uh, what man of you that have an ox or an ass, don't loose him from the stall and lead him away to watering. And so the reality of it is, is that, uh, you know, as he leads him away to watering, he's actually quoting the law of Leviticus and Deuteronomy that gave you the legal right to feed and water your animals. And he's looking at them basically saying, listen, you think more highly of your animals than you think about people. So my law of love says, I'm going to reach down to this woman who has a need, and I'm going to help her. I think one of the greatest ways to share your faith and one of the greatest ways that you can think about worship is how you treat people around you. I think sometimes your greatest testimony is not when you walk across the street and tell your neighbor to turn or burn. It's when you walk across the street to the little lady that's up in years and can't shovel her own driveway and shovel it out for her. You fix the step that she's about to fall over you may make a trip to the grocery store for them, or you just simply stop by and visit someone who's shut in that needs to know that somebody cares about them. That's the law of love that I believe brings expression into, uh, the, uh, into uh, the outworking of this as we become dispensers of this incredible grace. How we treat a, uh, uh, you know, a waitress in a restaurant. Sometimes I think Christian people can be the most demanding and rude customers on the planet. And sometimes waitresses almost hate to take a church group who come in because they're demanding, they're rude, and they tip very little. I think that's a bad testimony, and I think that's not worship. But when we treat people right and we love them, we walk in the perfect law of liberty. Then the expression of this outworking of this grace reaches everyone. Well, we're about to run out of time uh, on this segment. So uh, if you'd like to sow a seed into the ministry, uh, please look at the address that will come up on the screen. You can even scan that QR code. It will take you directly to a place where you can give via our PayPal order, uh, portal, and you can give via credit card or debit card. If you'd like to become a monthly partner, you can set it up there where it's automatically debited to your card every month. You can also send a check or money order to the address that will come up on the screen, or you can call the number that's on the screen. But because this is aired late night sometimes, uh, you won't, may not get an answer at night. But leave a message if you want to return. Call from us and someone from my team 
we'll call you. But please do that today. We do need your help. God bless you. Join us again next week. I am excited to announce the release of my latest book titled The Great I Am. In this book, we will explore the seven times in the Gospel of John that Jesus says, I am. When he uses that phrase, it is always in contrast to something from the Old Covenant. For instance, they thought Moses and the law was the door into the sheepfold, but Jesus said to them, I am the door. They thought that Israel was the true vine, but Jesus said to them, I am the vine, you are the branches. As you read the pages of this book, you will discover that Jesus removed the covenant of death and replaced it with the covenant of life. Get your copy of the book, The Great I Am, today.